chapter 20 is a really interesting chapter because it's really, it's kind of like the last chapter of John's gospel, except there's another chapter afterwards. Um, and so we'll talk about that. But if you guys got your Bibles, you guys got your Bible apps, turn to John 20 because we're going we're gonna to go through the entire chapter today. And today's not really so much of a message oriented, like there's not like this overarching message, but there are some real good truths that we can get out of it. And we're going we're gonna to dive in like as if this is a Bible study. You guys cool with that? We're going to do Bible study on John chapter 20. Um, but before we do that, let's pray and, uh, and let's get our hearts oriented. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're grateful for the Gospels. We're grateful uh, for the disciple John that he took the time to record what he saw and what he heard um, in a way that, that shows us who you are in a more clear and concise uh, manner. We're grateful that we get the opportunity to spend time and study it. Um, and, and how amazing it has been to not just, not just hear uh, what, what the effects of, of the person of Jesus Christ and, and, and the letters from, from other apostles um, or, or the Old Testament that points to uh, who you are, but we get to read and see and hear and, and understand the person uh, of Jesus Christ. We, we, we get to, to walk with you and, 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 and see how you talk to others and and then finally, at the climax of it all, see the, the beautiful display of mercy and grace and justice all interceding on the cross where history intertwines and, and everything just stops right there. And so I pray, Father, that, that from that moment we get to see where hope comes in uh, and, and where the good news is beginning to spread um, and, and there is joy uh, that is everlasting, that, that the disciples have the immense privilege to be at the forefront of that movement, uh, but, but we also get to have that privilege and that blessing to, to also be a part of that. Um, and so I, I, I pray that, if anything else, we get to walk out of here um, feeling honored to be a part of something that you have had on display since the beginning of creation. Um, your glory, your majesty, your plan that has come into fruition in our time. Um, and that we're also at the, at the end of that, looking back at what you have done and also looking forward to you coming again. Um, that we will be filled with just an expectation and a hope and a joy of, of what's to come. So we're grateful. We pray for all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have you guys ever... Um, had a case of mistaken. Has anyone ever had a case of mistaken identity, where uh, you think that maybe it's someone, uh, but it turns out that that person wasn't who you thought it was? Has that ever happened to you guys? Like maybe you're in a crowd and you maybe have, you lost track of somebody and like you you call out or you you tap someone on the shoulder and it's not it's not them. Um, that that happens. That happens. Uh, in fact, it's uh, it's happened to to my sister. Um, because of, of me, right? I had this tendency, and I still do, where I'm just like, my head's up in the cloud sometimes. I don't know if I'm alone in that. I just, I lose track of what's going on. Um, like my sisters, we were going to Argentina, uh, and I wasn't even sure when we were going, um, and, and I had to constantly ask them if I was gonna go with them, right? even though we had planned this for months. So, so I have this tendency of just like losing track of what I'm supposed to be focusing on. And it happens a lot when, when I'm in crowds. Like if there's other things, like I got that ADD 
I'll be I'll be I'll be walking with someone, and all of a sudden, like a you know, like a, a squirrel, I'll just go off. Um, and this was traumatic for my older sister Andrea because Andrea, she's kind of like the shepherd dog of the family, and I think it's because she's the oldest. She she's always had this level of anxiety of just making sure that everyone is is in the right place, that they're all together, because there's six of us. And my dad has a tendency to say, or actually do this, where he would say like, hey, if you're not in the car, we're leaving. And for most parents, it's a threat. Um, my dad, it's, it's a reality. Like, they're, like, he's like, we're leaving. Like, he doesn't even count. He's just like, everyone in the car? All right, like, gone. And Andrea, my older sister, she has this kind of um, anxiety that just, I guess, traumatized her because we have been left at many different locations. Like, I've, I've been left at the fair, I've been left at gas stations. I've been left at the park. Like, I, from, like from, from being a child, like two years old, up until, I don't know, until I finally figured out, like, I, I really got to make sure I know where my dad is. Um, I've been left all over the place. And not just me, like my little brother, Nathan. So, so my sister, Andrea, poor thing, she, she's had that kind of instilled in her. Like, she needs to make sure that everyone is where they need to be, or else one of us is going to get left. And, you know, that's it. We were six, now we're five, and then four, and just, you know, last few remaining. Um, and so we were, we were at this event. I can't remember exactly what event it was, but big crowds, you know, it's easy to get lost in those kind of events. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so we're, we're spread out. My dad's, he's kind of heading out, and he's leaving. He's, he made the call, right? Like, hey, we're going, right? And so, like, you had to hear that. You had to, you had to be on point. Listen to my dad's. Argentine accent, right? And uh, and so I'm actually I'm with him. Like Andrea doesn't see this, but I'm I'm with him. Like I'm I'm in step. And Andrea, knowing just who I am, assuming that I'm somewhere with my head in the clouds, she looks around and there in the corner is this kid with white shirt, blue jeans, kind of like a skater boy haircut. She just sees him from the back, right? Looks like me. Little does she know it's not me. So she goes up and she starts calling out, Danny, like we're going. And the kid doesn't turn around. And so she's like, she's getting like, I are like, Danny, come on, dad's leaving. It's like, we're like, like the pack is leaving, like they're going. So now she's got to make the effort to go over there. And then she gets upset sometimes when you don't like listen to her. Cause she's, she's top dog, she's alpha dog, at least, you know, that, that day and age. So she goes over, she grabs this kid by the shoulders and Flings him around, Danny! Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Obviously it wasn't me. And I'm there laughing at her. Mistaken identity, it can happen. And apparently, not just to us, but also people who have been around Jesus. We, we, we're going to go through the story in John chapter 20, where Mary Magdalene has a case of a mistaken identity with, with Jesus. But it's really interesting. So you guys, pull up John. John chapter 20, verse 1. If anyone's got it, can you go ahead and read the first verse? John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and was taken away from the tomb. Okay. Just to keep, make sure that everyone's up to date. We, we've gone through John chapter 19. That was the, the crucifixion. Um, the next day was Sabbath, so we had uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took down the body, had permission to go put him in a tomb that was in the same place. There was a garden where Jesus Christ was crucified, and they laid him in the tomb. Now, the way that the tomb works, it's, it's this 
hole inside of this garden and there is this large stone that's rolled over it. You guys have seen the movie, you guys probably have seen the pictures, you guys know more or less what it looks like. That's basically what it looks like. There's these grooves that they put in, huge stone, probably as tall as me, if not, if not bigger, very heavy. They put it inside, uh, on, on, in the front of this tomb. So the first day of the, day of the week, while it's still dark, probably in other gospels say it's, it's just as, as light is appearing. So probably like 4 or 5 a.m., maybe 5.30 a.m., Mary Magdalene, she, she gets to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So pause there. Um, there. There are four different Gospels. We know that, right? In the Gospel of, of Mark, we see that he, he actually includes some other women that were there as well. In Mark chapter 16, verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. So there's three ladies that, that, that Mark mentions, right? You got Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. Yeah, just, is this curious to you? Do you guys know who Mary, the mother of James is? Does anyone know? Throw a guess. Mary, the mother of James. Anyone? Stab in the dark? No wrong answers, except there are. Mary, the mother of James, is Jesus' mother. Boom. Right. Say that a little bit louder. Jesus' mom. Mary, the mother of James, is also Jesus' mother. James is Jesus' half-brother, right? But why doesn't John or Mark say Mary, the mother of Jesus? Well, what we see is later on, we know like the overemphasis of Mary being Jesus' mom. That came much later through the Catholic Church. But throughout the gospel, we don't see that kind of emphasis. Mary wasn't any more special than any other disciple, right? Nor should she be, because this is what Jesus says himself in, in Luke chapter 11, 27. Jesus is preaching to the disciples. He's preaching to the crowds. And there's kind of a, a following going on. And as he's speaking, in, in verse 27 says, As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd, just some random lady, she calls out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Just a weird thing to say. And he replies, he says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So this woman is, is, is pointing to Mary, saying she's super blessed because she bore you and nursed you. And he says, actually, blessed are those who hear God's word and obeys it. Jesus, he contradicts this notion that, that the woman that God decided to bear Jesus was blessed merely because she was used for that opportunity as a, as a vessel. That she wasn't any more special or blessed because of that. He, he refuses that. And he says, rather, you're blessed when you hear and observe the word of God, not just because God decided to use your body as his instrument. So she's listed as the mother of James, which that James is the one that wrote the book of James, right? I know, this is a trick question, right? What did he write? I don't know. Uh, he wrote the book of James, which is in the New Testament. And in that letter himself, James doesn't even call himself the brother of Jesus, which if I were Jesus' brother, I would throw the, I'd name drop everywhere. I'd be like, excuse me, <laughs> I'm Jesus' brother. Um, we can I have two seats at the front. Right, I would name drop them everywhere. But, but James doesn't do that. In fact, no one 
uses any kind of earthly relationship with Jesus to their advantage, but rather the only, the only privileged relationship that they have with Jesus is one by faith, and, and that's the one that only really matters. Right? Who, who earthly relationship, but the relationship by faith is the one that actually saves and matters. There, there are a lot of people that had maybe an earthly relationship with Jesus, but they didn't have faith in him as their Lord. At the end of the day, that kind of earthly relationship didn't, didn't prove to be fruitful. The women, they go in the morning, and, and you might notice that there was no guys there. Does anyone notice that? Why is that? Why, why were there no dudes? Is it just because we're all heavy sleepers? We do not like to wake up in the morning. Ladies like to get their, their, their shopping done early, and they're like, we, we're going to go go to the tomb, and then afterwards we're going to Hobby Lobby? No. The reason is because the idea or, or that, that culture of embalming and preparing bodies was reserved just for women, mostly. And the, the fact that Jesus was crucified right before the Sabbath meant that they were not able to do the proper ceremony of, of of embalming and, and, and preparing the body, anointing the body. Do you guys remember when, um, when Jesus was, was, was in Bethany uh, and the woman comes in and she pours the alabaster perfume on him, wipes his feet with that perfume and, and, and his hair and, and all over his body? What does he say? He says that she is doing this to anoint me for my burial. Why? Because he knows that he's going to die right before the Sabbath and he ain't, no one's going to have time to anoint him or, or, or put perfume on him. So he's already been anointed. But so the women, they typically are the ones that will prepare, prepare the bodies with spices and cloth. And he, he died right before the Sabbath. He was buried in haste. So they were unable to prepare it. But this is something that, that going over the days of the week, right, um, it's always bugged me. I don't know about you guys. But this is something that I, 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 I've had issues with. So I'm like, I don't know how to go about this. Um, so, so John uh, chapter 1. Does anyone have it? Uh, chapter 20, verse, verse 1. Someone just read it. Nathan, you read it, right? right? Go ahead and read it again. On the first day of the week. Okay, stop. <laughs> what day is that? Sunday. We would think Monday, right? But it's Sunday, right? Because for the Jews, the, 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 the last day of the week is the Sabbath. God worked for six days, rested on the seventh, which there's, it's the Sabbath, the Saturday, right? So Sunday is the first day of the week. Now, Jesus died right before the Sabbath. We see that in, the, in, in the, the Gospels. So that's why the Catholics, they celebrate what's called, does anyone know? Good Friday. Good Friday right? They celebrate Good Friday, which is to commemorate and celebrate his crucifixion. That's Good Friday. So he dies, we see, at around the ninth hour, which is about 3 p.m. And, and, and so if he dies on Friday, and he, he, he's up by Sunday, crack of dawn, right? It's still dark out, the light's just coming over. Right, so you think, okay, that's on Friday. You got Friday, Saturday, Sunday, right? Three days. Rose again on three days. Like, what's the big deal? No, no, no issue there. That's fine. Are you guys okay with that? Everyone okay with that? Okay, I'm not okay with that. Because this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. He says this. He says, for just as Jonah was, in, was, was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, talking about himself, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Three days, three nights. All right? Now let's, let's count this out. Three days, three nights, right? You got Friday. Let's say that these are, these are the nights and these are the days. You got Friday night. 
Saturday morning, right? Saturday night, Sunday morning, and he's already up. So you're missing a day. Sunday night, Monday morning. Did he, did, maybe he rose on Monday. Like maybe we've been doing church on the wrong day, like we're supposed to be doing it on, on Monday, right? What's the, what's the deal? We're missing a whole day. And some people will be like, well, you can't be so literal. Like, they, I mean, it's just it's an exaggeration. He's just using, you know, Jonah, three days, three nights, you know, it's, it's an exaggeration. It doesn't mean that he was actually in the tomb for three days. He was like maybe in there for like 40 hours, more or less. Unless, unless Jesus actually died on Thursday. Now, play this out. Jesus dies on Passover. Right? That's what, that's what we understand. He dies on Passover. And Passover is celebrated on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. It's not our calendar. It's not January, but it's, it's their, their calendar. The 14th day of the first month of their calendar. But that can fall on any day of the week. Right? That could be a, a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just the 14th day of the first calendar. So if you read it, in Exodus chapter 12, where Passover, the whole thing starts, and, and, Jesus, and God is telling the Israelites how they're supposed to commemorate it. They tell, he tells Israel they're supposed to celebrate Passover on whatever day it is, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, and then after Passover, they're supposed to go an entire week without eating leavened bread, which is called the Festival of Unleavened Bread, right? Very creative name. So it's Passover. Passover plus the week of unleavened bread. But if you read Exodus chapter 12, verse 16, this is what it says about this festival. It says, on the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. So in this festival, you have the first day and the seventh day. These are sacred days. And what, do they, what does he say? He says, do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat that is all you may do. So the Jews, they have a Sabbath every single week. That's their weekly Sabbath. That's Saturday. But they also have special Sabbaths for festivals. And every now and then, there'll be a situation where you will have a special Sabbath and a weekly Sabbath back to back. So that's two days where they cannot work at all. So if Jesus died on Passover at 3 p.m. and that was a Thursday, then that would mean that Friday, the next day, would be the first day of the unleavened festival, which would be a special Sabbath. And that means that there would be another Sabbath following the immediate day after, which would be Saturday. And then that means that there would be Sunday, which is the day that Jesus Christ rose again. Does that make sense? So let's, let, let's, let's play it out, right? So he does on Thursday, 3 p.m. So you got Thursday night, Thursday night. I was going, I was going in the wrong direction. Friday morning, right? Friday morning. I'm going to try not to mess up here. <laughs> Friday night, Saturday morning. Saturday night, and he rose again when? Sunday morning. Three days, three nights. I believe that when Jesus says something, literally, he means it literally. Like, he's, he's going to accomplish what he says. His word does not fail. And if he says, like, Jonah was in the, in the fish for three days, three nights, I'm also going to be in the, in the heart of the, of the earth for three days and three nights. So <laughs> we should actually be celebrating Good Thursday, not Good Friday, but, you know. Like, if you want to be that guy, be like, it's actually a good Thursday. You could be that guy. Like, I, I might. I might. Um, so, but then you got from Thursday night all the way until Sunday, 
no one is able to do any work. Because as soon as, as soon as you can count three stars in the sky, it's nighttime, and that's when, that's when Passover starts. So Thursday night, from that on, you can't, you can't work. And I believe that's how God orchestrated it for reasons that no one would go to the tomb and mess with the body. No one would be able to get into the tomb and even, even put you know, uh, something as, as, as beautiful as wanting to prepare the body for the sake of, of serving the Lord. No one was able to go into the tomb. God's like, no one touch him. He's going to be there for three days and three nights. So these women, they arrive at the tomb on Sunday morning, just as light is coming over the hills, maybe 4 or 5 a.m. And they don't have a plan. Like, they really, like, they, they're just like, let's just go with all these oils and, and strips of cloth, maybe. And, but there's no plan. In fact, in the other Gospels, you see them wondering, how are we going to move this stone? Because this is a massive stone. It's way too heavy for a couple of ladies to, to move. You need, like, full-grown men and a, and, and a couple of them to actually get this thing to move out of the groove that it's been set. But they just, they just go anyways. Which, I don't know about you, I don't know, if, I don't know if I would have done that. But I think that just goes to show that kind of faith and hope. That's the only way you can describe it. It's this faith and hope that's mingled together. They're, they're not expecting that there's going to, you know, just, just someone's going to do something for them. But they're just like, you know, God, like, let's just go. Let's just be obedient. And it's, it's, it's what makes this task even more remarkable. Like, they just had this desperate desire to minister to the Lord. And even though their mission seemed hopeless, they just, they went anyways. And it's an example of the opportunities, I think, that can come about through obedience and dedication that it can create. Just, let's, like, it, the odds aren't in our favor. It, it seems like a crazy mission. It, it doesn't, it feels hopeless, but I'm just going to be faithful. I'm just going to, I'm going to obey and keep going. Like, following the Lord in spite of fear and uncertainty or the seeming impossibility of what you're going to do. When you, when you just obey, you really you give the Lord an opportunity to show a miracle in the process. And you see that time and time again throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Like, how many people have a calculated risk? Like, let's just, let's see what's the probability of the Red Sea opening. Like, let's look at the facts and the data. You know, you know what, Moses, I don't think this is a good idea, Right? No, let's just, God says to go, let's go. God says to do it, let's do it. Let's serve. Doesn't look like it's going to work out. Okay, but I'm, I'm going to be faithful. It looks like there's an impossibility. Well, I'm just going to keep going. Uncertainty. Okay, well, I'm going to trust him. And that's where God starts to open up doors and, 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 and miracles are able to happen. So these women, they go in spite of a huge barrier. And the way that God that they were privileged to be the first to see the proof of a resurrected Jesus. Because they go to the tomb, and what do they see? The stone is rolled away. Now, if you read through the four Gospels, you, you might have noticed that there are, there are different stories here of who went to the tomb, and how they arrived, and how it happens, and who, and how did Jesus appear to them, and what time. And, and a lot of them, they differ in detail. Now, at first, if you read through the Gospels, this might be discouraging because you're like, there's four different Gospel accounts of that Sunday, uh, that Resurrection Sunday. But when you look at it, it actually becomes to be encouraging, right? Because in my head, I'd be like, man, if I was the disciples, 
I would have been I, I was like, let, let's just sit down and let's just make sure all of our stories are the same so that we're not we're not stepping on each other's store on each other's toes, right? But that kind of that kind of reasoning, that kind of idea, that thought is is really when you're trying to make up a story and you just want to make sure that no one contradicts each other, right? But the truth is, when you're an actual eyewitness to something, you're going to be thinking, well, I don't, I don't care what George saw, I, I, I don't care, I don't care what Nathan claims over there. I'm going to tell you what I saw, and if they saw something different, then whatever. But I'm going to tell you what I saw, and that's what I saw. That's what I heard. That's that's the way that I received the information. And at the end, it becomes more believable because it starts to it starts to intermingle these details and these facts, right? Because Jesus come back to life. This is an exciting event. Like this is this is big news, and people are excited. There's lots of commotion. There's lots of activity. People are running back and forth, right? Like you don't see a lot of running going on in the gospel. This is one of the few times you actually see running. People are excited. And with that, certain details get left out. Certain details get m more highlighted. And this is true in all four Gospels. Now, unfortunately, for the sake of time, I don't have the time to, to, to explain how they all fit together. Um, so you're just going to have to do that study on your own, right? It's, it's, a, it's a fun study. If you want, call me up. We'll get coffee, and we'll do it. But, but for the sake of time, we're, we're not going to do that today. We're just going to focus on mainly John's and maybe a little bit uh, of Mark and, and Luke. Um, so, so we read verse 1. Nathan, go ahead and read it again. You're, you're amazing at this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Okay, we read in, uh, was it Mark, that, that there's three women there, but, but John only highlights Mary Magdalene. And the reason why is because we get to see her again in verse 11. But let's go into verse 2. I'm going to read this. Uh, so she came running and the other disciple. The one whom Jesus loved. And we know that is who? John, right? John doesn't like to mention himself. He doesn't like to, he doesn't like to put his own name out there. He says, I'm just the one that Jesus loved. So he, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that John mentions that. He's just like, like there's not, there's not really a reason why, but he's just like, by the way, I totally beat Peter. <laughs> I can just, just, just let you know I'm faster. Um, verse 5, he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, this tells us actually two things. Number one, it tells us that he resurrected. And number two, it kind of gives us an idea as to how he resurrected. Some of the, some of the little details. Um, and when we talk about the resurrection of Christ, what, what we're talking about consists of the spirit of Jesus Christ returning to his physical body. And in that process, there was a restoration of life to that physical body, right? Because the spirit of Christ never dies. Um, he never dies. It's, it's eternal. He is eternal. But the physical body, which he has wrapped himself in, when, when we read through the, uh, the, the Christmas account, the narrative that he wrapped himself in flesh, that flesh 
has been, has died. It's literally, and it comes back to life after three days. But after three days, this, the spirit of Christ, which was separated from the body, comes back into that body and brings it back to life. It wasn't like, you know, the princess bride where he is mostly dead, right? It's, it's not like some Mission Impossible thing, Tom Cruise, like he's got like a faint heartbeat or something that goes off and gives him a, a defibrillator and he wakes back up. Like there's not, like none of that's playing around. He's literally dead for three days. Dead as a doorknob. There is no pulse beating. And some people think that like maybe he was like breathing still. Like he got stabbed in the side and blood and water brushed out. N none of that happened. His, he was full. And, and we know this because Jesus, he committed his spirit into the Father's hands. I, I commit my spirit into your hands. And he breathed his last. So the question is, how did he resurrect? Um, so, so you got John and, 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 and Peter, they run to the tomb, and what do they see? They see, they see two different things. They, they, uh, John is the only one that sees the, um, the, the strips of linen, and then Peter goes in, and then John later goes in to, to, to verify. See these strips of linen, and then he sees this, this head cloth, right? So just so you guys know, the detail here. The way that you prepare a body is that you get these strips of linen, Right? So think of like a bed sheet and rip that up into small little strips and you, you, you dip it in like these fragrant oils and spices and stuff and you dip it and then you put it onto the body and just, you just do that around. It's not like necessarily like a mummification, mummification, right? You don't like wrap it around uh, like a cocoon. You just place these strips of linen. Um, but then there is this thing and they have a, a word for it. I forgot what the word is. It doesn't matter. Um, it's for the head. It's like a specific way that they wrap the head around. Um, and, and John says something interesting. He says uh, that it was separate from the linen and it was still lying in its place. It was still lying in its place. Other translations, the, the actual way to, to really translate it says that it was still wrapped up. It was still wrapped up. It's almost as, has anyone ever done this? You get like a paper mache and you put it over a balloon. And then that paper mache hardens. And then what do you do? You pop the balloon. What, what happens to the paper mache? It stays. It keeps its form, right? Almost like there's a balloon in there, but it's not there anymore. So the, the wrappings are still bound together, all crusty and hard, because what? It's been like three days, right? Wound up, wrapped up like if it's around a head, but the head is no longer in there. So what we see is not just the fact that Jesus Christ resurrected but we see a little bit of how he resurrected he resurrected through the wrapping not like lazarus if you guys remember lazarus he came out and jesus was like unwrap him he's gonna suffocate right they're like they, they, someone unbinds lazarus's wrappings but jesus actually went through the wrapping and tells us that his resurrected body that he was no longer bound by physics and we're going to see how that plays into the gospel accounts later. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple, John, right, who had reached the tomb first, he also wants to add that, uh, also went inside and he saw and believed. Now, that question, he saw and believed, what, what did they believe? Well, they, they didn't believe that Jesus Christ resurrected. They believed Mary Magdalene's account that someone had taken the body and stole it. That's what they believed. How do I know that? Verse 9. 
they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now what we're going to see in these next couple of, of verses is that despite all the signs, the disciples do not get it, right? And Jesus begins a series of appearances in order to provoke and stir belief in these disciples. And we see that. Verse 11. Now Mary, she stood outside the tomb. She was crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. So, so we see that Mary, she goes back to the tomb, right? She goes back probably to mourn. Uh, this is something that's devastating for all of them. Um, but she goes back to the tomb where, where she first realized that someone had taken the body. And, and maybe she can get some signs, some clues as to what, who, why, where, when. So she goes back and she's weeping. She's looking into the tomb. And as she looks into the tomb, verse 12, it says, She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now, we can assume that she didn't know that these were angels because of the way that she's just so candor with them. She, she's the, like this. When you see an angel, like throughout the entire scriptures, like you are on your face and you're like, oh my gosh, please don't kill me. These things are terrifying. You don't want to see an angel in person. So it's most likely she, she just mistook them for people. And a lot of times angels will do that. They're God's messengers and they, they, they will appearance and form as, as, a, as a human being, as a person. And so she sees these two dudes in there. And uh, one at the head, one at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabona, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she had said, being sings to her. So Mary, she goes to the tomb. She's mourning. She's weeping. She sees these two dudes. She mistakes them for just regular guys. Jesus appear, appears to her, and she mistakes them for the gardener, which I think is so cute. I, I love that. Jesus as the gardener, because he is the gardener. In a sense, right? Like, like we are the vines, he's the branches, and he, he alludes to the fact that, that God the Father is the gardener. He, he prunes and, 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 and works with us as, as we're growing, and, and we need a little pruning here and there. And she sees Jesus, and he's like the gardener. But then all of a sudden, she realized who he is when he says her name. When he says her name. That's the only way. You can really realize who Jesus is when he says you. He comes after you. He, he speaks life into you. And this is where we get into the entire theme of this chapter. Of how difficult it is to understand who Christ is until, until the word and the power of God through the Holy Spirit convicts you. Until he calls out your name. 
Jesus appears to her, says her name, and she finally realizes that this is Jesus. What's interesting here is that this is the first recorded appearance of Jesus Christ after the resurrection. And it's to a, a woman. Not just a woman, but a woman who has a history of prostitution. Right? Like this detail is overlooked, but it is huge in terms of how we understand the authenticity of the gospel. Right? Because women are not the ideal first witnesses if you're going to make up a story. They really aren't, especially because of the bias in that day and age. In that day and age, if, if a woman was your witness, it would make your account less believable. And then on top of the, the fact that she has a history of prostitution, if you were to tell anyone in that day and age, like, hey, who was the first witness? Oh, it was Mary. Okay, goodbye. Mary Magdalene? Like, she got, like, got almost stoned it, like her? Yeah, no thanks. Like, if I was making up the gospel, if I was making up, like, hey, there was this dude named Jesus, he walked around a little bit, then he died, but now he's alive. Yeah, no, like, it was for real. Okay, who's going to be your, your first witness? Nicodemus. He was there. He laid down the body. He was making sure he came back. Him and Josephus, they were like, uh, like what's up? And then it's like, oh, snap, Nicodemus, he was the Sanhedrin. He's a high dude. Like, like, you can respect him. You can believe him. You can trust him. Him, Joseph, 11 other dudes, they were all there. They saw it. No, who's your favorite, wasn't it? Mary Magdalene. I don't believe it. But this is, this is, this is just exactly in line with the way God works. Our culture will say, this is what we're supposed to do. And God's like, nah, that's not how it works. Like, the, the firstborn is supposed to get the inheritance. It's going to be the secondborn. Like, the, 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 the top son, no, it's going to be number 12. Right? Like, Jesus, God just works in a way to, to shame the strong and the wise. And, and here he uses the women to shame the men. Because it's a beautiful thing to show that, that the kingdom of heaven isn't one that is only for the strong the kingdom of heaven isn't one that's for the rich and the powerful and the mighty, those who can buy their way into heaven. The kingdom of heaven is for those who are humble and meek and lowly in spirit, and they trust in the Lord. He uses what is foolish to shame the wise. God does not conform to the culture, but he forces the culture to conform to him and question itself. And at this point, at this point, God uses Mary Magdalene, someone who has probably a huge amount of doubt of her own self-worth and her own use for the sake of the gospel. Like Jesus is gone, he was her only hope. And, and, and like you go back to being like the scum of society in their way of understanding value. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ lifts her up and says, Mary. I'm going to use you as the first person to tell the rest of the dudes that I'm back. Like, how awesome is that? Like, that's so Jesus. And of course, at this point, Mary is excited, right? You just back, you're excited, and she moves naturally to embrace Jesus. And he says this, he says, do not hold on to me. That's what we read, right? Do not hold on to me. But really, this is a bad translation. The original Greek, it, it says... Touch me not, right? Like, 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 don't touch me. This is a song that, that MC Hammer wrote about later on. Um, 
at this point, Mary is not allowed to touch Jesus Christ. You might be wondering why. Well, he says this, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, the, the, the ascension that he's talking about, uh, he's performing to, to cleanse the heavenly sanctuary. We, we see this kind of picture um, tied together in, in Hebrews chapter, chapter 9. If you read through the book, the book of Hebrews. In, in chapter 9, it talks about how the Old Testament and the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the priests, and, and, the, and the way that the sacrifices worked, all of it was just a picture, just a shadow, just a model of the heavenly temple. It's, it's a model of what heaven looks like. This is why like, God was so strict with Moses, like write this down, make sure you do not mess up any, because this is, you are representing the temple of heaven here on earth. But it's just a model. Right? Like, like if you were to, to build a, a building and the architecture comes with you with a model, you're not going to mistake that for the actual building, right? You're not going to like pull a Zoolander and be like, that's not the building, right? Like, that, that's just a model. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about how this, the model, the, the sacrifices that were done in, in the temple by the high priests and, and by, by the, the other priests, the Levites, they were to reflect the cleansing sacrifice of Jesus Christ who is our high priest. So everything that you saw throughout the Old Testament was just a picture of what was going to happen in that moment. And uh, so just so you guys know, once a year, this is a huge day in, in Jewish culture, um, but we, it's through obviously the Old Testament. Once a year, there's this day called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, right? Huge, huge festival. And, and, and the reason why it's so big is because this was the Day of Atonement for the entire population of Israel. The high priest, who is like top of the line in terms of priesthood, he would make a sacrifice for the entire people of Israel. He would then take the blood of the bull from that sacrifice, and he would walk into the temple, and then he'd walk into the holy sanctuary, the holy tabernacle and then there is a sacred special small location inside of the temple which is called the holy of holies and inside the holy of holies no one was allowed to be no one was allowed to enter into that place if you do you in fact they, they, they were so afraid of dying that they would tie a rope around themselves the high priest so that when they would have to go once a, once a year if they didn't come out they would like tug on the rope and see if they're still alive like this is this is how sacred and how solemn this this festival this this day is. The high priest would walk in with this blood from the sacrifice, and he would sprinkle it on the ark of the of the covenant, right? Where you have the mercy seat, you have the cherubim, you have the law. He would go in and sprinkle it, and he has to be completely ceremonially clean to enter. And because of that, no one was allowed to touch the high priest. Can't touch him. Why? Because it pictured Christ going into the heavenly temple and presenting himself as a sacrifice. All of that was picturing this moment of Jesus Christ, our high priest, going to the temple. And this day, that Sunday, that resurrection Sunday, that is the day of atonement for all creation. And no one saw the high priest except Mary, Magdalene, she's in the garden just in that moment. He's about to go. He's ascending. She sees him, and he's like, "Don't touch me. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not done yet." 
I have to go ascend to the Father, but go ahead and tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my Father, their Father, our God. In Mark's Gospel, it says in verse 11, um, oh, so, so, so Mary, she goes to the disciples and, and she reports her work. But this is what happens she, when she goes. In, in Mark's Gospel, uh, uh, in chapter 16, verse 11, it says that when they heard that Jesus was still alive and that she had seen him, what, what would you imagine their response would be? Like when they heard that, that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, like you like imagine the next sentence would be like they were overjoyed, overwhelmed, they put out a search party. No, the next sentence is they did not believe it. They heard that he was alive. She'd seen him. She just think they just think she's crazy. And then we see in Matthew's gospel, Jesus appears to a second group of women. <laughs> like he is favoring the ladies that day. He's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna shame all the dudes. Appears to a second group of women. And at that point, they were able to, to clasp his feet and worship him. And he tells them, he says, go tell the 11 to go meet me in Galilee. But then we also see that they didn't believe them either. And then we see in Mark's gospel again, in verse 12, it says, afterward, Jesus appeared to a different form to two of them. And you'll get this in, in Luke's gospels. These two guys, they're on the road, they're walking. And, and Jesus shows up, and, and he's like, what happened? He's like, and they're like, you don't know what's happened? Jesus Christ just died. And he's like, oh, tell me about it. It's, it's awesome. But, but it says that he appeared to them as they were walking in the country. Verse 13 says, these returned, and they reported it to the rest. But they did not believe them either. Like, why do you think Jesus is going at such great lengths to convince the disciples through other eyewitnesses? He's like, go tell them. Like, like, how have they not believed yet? Like, go, go tell them. I think what Jesus is doing here is that he's showing how difficult it's going to be to convince someone, even from an eyewitness account. He wants his disciples to know that. Why? Because the disciples are going to be in charge of spreading the gospel throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this demonstrates to the disciples that the only thing that can convince a person that Jesus Christ is Lord is the power of God's work. It, it, it's just, that's the only thing that's going to convince them. We see this again reiterated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, if I was Paul, Peter, John, James, like I would be tempted to think like, man, I, I have to rely on my own power of persuasion or my own personal testimony. We got to corroborate this a little bit better. We have to have like this bullet point. We need to, to have some kind of PowerPoint presentation and be like, this is why you should believe in Jesus. But I think when you're tempted to do that as a disciple, all they need to do is think back to this moment. And think about how they lacked belief themselves and they were being told by eyewitnesses that Jesus Christ is back. They themselves couldn't believe it. And if they have an issue with that, then their own, their own personal testimonies are not a substitute for the word of God. And this is why they wrote the New Testament because it's through the Holy Spirit who wrote on their behalf persuades others who are being saved. Right? And so for us, I think it can be frustrating at times. Like when someone that we love or someone that's in our family or, or a friend or a coworker, we're sharing the gospel. We're like, maybe if I was just like a little bit more convincing or if I just worked on my public speaking skills or I had like some bullet point or power presentation, like I can, I can lay it all out. 
here we see like even eyewitnesses have a hard time convincing other people. Like, can you imagine how, how set in your mind to tell other people if you actually saw Jesus Christ and you were an eyewitness and how frustrating to be like, how do you not believe this? Like, I saw him. I grabbed his feet. Like, like we ate a fish sandwich together. And like, people don't believe. Like, I was like, you guys, frustrating. But even for them, it's, it's the power of the work of God. It's, it's God's word. It's when Jesus calls their name that they're like, Rabbi. So Jesus, he appears to Mary Magdalene. He, he, he appeared to the group of women. He appeared to the two people, the two guys on the road. And then we find out in Luke and also in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uh, reiterates this, that Jesus appears to Peter alone, away from the other 11 dudes, or the other 10. And what this does is this confirms the fact that Peter was chosen to lead the church at that time. But, but, but Jesus needed to restore him first before God and before man. So, so he gives them the opportunity to be the first of the 11 disciples that uh, were able to see him. And in Luke, what we, it, it looks like they were discussing. Imagine that, that Peter went back to the other 10 guys and was like, guys, I saw Jesus. And they were like, you probably didn't. And like, no, I did. And, and, and I would imagine that they were probably even thinking that how convenient is it for Peter to have seen Jesus? Right, the one who, who denied him three times, now he's coming back and saying, oh yeah, I saw him, we had a good talk, he restored me. How convenient would that be? And then all of a sudden it says, while they were discussing these things, these two guys show up that came from the road. Also telling them that they saw Jesus. And while that's going on, everyone's in the room, they're talking about it, they're like, no, that can't happen, it's not real, Jesus Christ died, he was on the cross, I saw it. Then all of a sudden Jesus shows up. Verse 19, John chapter 20. This is on the evening. So this is still Sunday. On the evening of, the, of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together. Now, it's not all of them. It's 10 of them. We're going to find out who's missing from that crowd. When the disciples were together and the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. How freaky is that? Right? Like, all of a sudden, like, doors are locked, barricaded, no one's coming in, you don't have the password, you can't come in. All of a sudden, Jesus is like, peace. What's up, guys? After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed, finally, when they saw the Lord. There's a little more detail in the other Gospels, we won't go into that because we don't have time. Verse 21, Jesus said, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is kind of weird, right? Like, we can just imagine. Like, like we can admit, this is kind of weird. He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. So the question is, did they receive the Holy Spirit at that moment? And emphatically, we can say no. Because we see later on in Acts, if you read through Acts, they're in the upper room, and on the day of Pentecost, which is very significant, that's when the Holy Spirit comes down, tongues of fire, speaking in tongues, 3,000 people get saved, big deal. So then why is Jesus saying it now? The reason is that it's, it's a play on word. In Hebrew, 
the same word for spirit is the same word for air or breath, ruach. And so in, in a way, Jesus is saying that you are going to receive the Holy Spirit and, and he is symbolically breathing on them, saying that it is his spirit that he has given to them. But the reason why they had to wait until Pentecost is because Passover happens, right? We're, we're going back to the original Passover. The Egyptians, 10 plagues, last plague, uh, they put blood over the doors. The, the, the angel of death passes over. Like, get out of here. All the uh, Israelites, they leave Egypt. They go into the desert. And 50 days from that moment when they, they, they left Egypt, they're at Mount Sinai. Moses is up in the mountain. And God gives the law to the people of Israel. Okay? 50 days. That's why it's Pentecost. Pentecost. Penta, you know, a pentagram. Five, five, fifty. So 50 days after the Passover, that's when the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23. So, so he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23 says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Okay, again, we got to stop. This is weird, right? It's like, why is Jesus giving all of a sudden the disciples like the opportunity to forgive anyone and be like, you, if you're not forgiven, you're not forgiven. Like, that's a lot that he's giving authority to these guys. What we see is this. The power to forgive is God's alone. I have no power to say to Seabass, uh, like, hey, he sins, right? And he is guilty before an eternal God. And God's like, hey, Danny, how about you make the decision? Is he good? Is he not? I'd be like, eh, eh, nah, right? Like, what? Like, not, God's not going to give me that power. And, and, and everyone understands this. The power to forgive sins is God's alone. That's why when Jesus said this to the guy that was, the, that was a cripple, he's on the mat, and he's like, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees are like, what is this guy talking about? Like, that's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins? And Jesus is like, yeah, God alone. Who do you think I am? And so God's the only one that can forgive sins. But in Jewish culture and, and just the way the law works, the idea of forgiveness and atonement is all tied up in the temple and in sacrifices and in atonement, right? And so Jesus shows that he has the power to save and forgive sins. What he's telling the disciples now is that he's saying, who you forgive will be forgiven and who you don't forgive won't be forgiven. But he's not saying that they get the, the power to choose who gets to be forgiven and who doesn't get to be forgiven. What he's saying is that the power of forgiveness is now tied into the gospel, which these men are now going to be ministers of the gospel. You get what I'm saying? He's saying that the gospel is the only thing that can save. The good news of who I am as Lord, as Savior, as the atoning sacrifice, as the, the lamb that was that was sacrificed before the, the, the creation of the world, like that good news is what is going to determine someone's uh, righteousness and their eternal state of forgiveness. It's the power to save first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles, Romans 1.16. So what, what he's saying is that those who confess and believe really are forgiven. Like they don't need to in order to be forgiven. But those who reject the gospel really are condemned. And no matter how many times they go to the temple, they won't receive forgiveness there. It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's always Jesus. 
So it's, it's a clear with the disciples. Now, let's go into this next caveat. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Digimus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. So, okay, so you got Mary Magdalene, you got the, the group of women, you got the two guys, you got ten disciples being like, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand to his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were uh, in the house again. Like, like, like a whole week has passed and they could not convince Thomas. Like how frustrating would that be? But I think again, it goes to show the fact that even eyewitnesses, even disciples who they all are saying the same thing, can you convince one disciple? It's the power of God's word alone. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the doors, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it to my side. Stop doubting and believe. <laughs> I thought it was funny. I was like, his name is, uh, is Digimus. I imagine Jesus would be like, Yo, what's up, Thomas? Did you miss me? <laughs> Stupid. Um, people give him a bad rap, right? They, they, what's, does anyone know Thomas's nickname? Doubting. Doubting Thomas. Like that's that's unfortunate. He just happened to be the last guy. Like he didn't get the he didn't get the Evite for the first meeting, right? So he just wasn't there. But all of them doubted. Like all of them weren't 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 you know because they finally saw the signs. Like they all needed Jesus to show up in order for them to believe. So. He gets a bad rap. Thomas says to him in verse 28, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. <coughs> Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about us. Jesus is saying that the blessing of God's grace that's going to be outpoured towards us who have not seen the actual resurrected physical body of Jesus Christ is going to be more blessed because it needs more grace in order to be given the eyes to see and the ears to hear by faith. And you can consider an eternal blessing because we are just as convinced today that Jesus Christ actually rose again. We are just as convinced, no, no less than those 11 dudes in that room with Jesus Christ who put their hands on his body, on his hands and his side. Why? It's not because we're just, we, we figured it out. It's not because, you know, our parents told us so. It's not because everyone else in the church believes it. I mean, maybe for some, that they'll, they'll, they'll ride along with the story and then later on be like, nah, never mind. But for those who really are convicted and convinced by the Holy Spirit, it's because the Holy Spirit is convicting and convincing them. This whole chapter is just showing the fact that it's the power of God's Word and His Holy Spirit that moves in us in order for us to be believing. It's the only way that we believe. And so we, we, we pray for that, for, for those that we love, for those that we, that we are around, and then we, and then we just share God's word and we pray that that doesn't affect, but we, we leave it at God's word. We say, this is the only thing that, that has power. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it has the power. Not, I'm not ashamed of my public speaking skills. 
Not I'm not ashamed because of my connections. Not I'm not ashamed because of my influence. He says I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it has the power. Don't don't belittle the power of the gospel when you share it with someone. Even if it's not as elaborate or or as, as eloquent as some other pastors or people that you see or hear about, these apologists, you're not Ravi Zacharias, I'm not, trust me. It's okay. Because the power doesn't lie in the speaker, the power lies in the gospel. It's the only way that we believe. Jesus, verse 30, he performed many other signs and in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Think that just like, what did he do? It'd be so cool to know. But we'll figure it out when we get to heaven. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the thesis that John is putting at the very end of the, the gospel. That's the reason why he wrote it. It's written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And he basically concludes the book with that purpose, right? Basically, you could just close, end chapter, that's it, done, wrap it up, seal it, send, delivered, fine. And most other gospel writers, they end at that point, like Jesus Christ comes back and that's it. Uh, So the question is, why do we have chapter 21? Because we've got another chapter. Really, chapter 21 is just a footnote. It's just extra details. I think what we have here, um, when he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, John's like, let me just give him a little taste. Right? Like he, he goes the next step, and he's like, I'm going I'm to share with them just one more account, a couple more things that Jesus did in our presence. It's a footnote, John, uh, chapter 21. But it's also a way that John ties all these different themes that we see throughout the gospel. So it's really interesting. We're going to try to point that out next week, which will be our last week. You guys, you guys, did you hear what I just said? It's our last week of the book of John. Also, it's the last week of the year. So just coincidence, right? Um, I don't know about you guys. This has been super exciting for me and, uh, and as beneficial for me, I hope, as it has been for you. But it's a beautiful thing just to, just to study who Jesus Christ is and how he was with his disciples and be encouraged the fact that that those guys who had that kind of relationship with him, that Jesus Christ is still active, and he's still moving today, and he's still, he's still the same one that was yesterday as he is today, and he will be tomorrow. That kind of love, that kind of care, and that kind of attention uh, that he had with the disciples, he has with us. And what's also really cool is that the mission still goes on. Like the disciples that were there in that room, what they were supposed to do, and what Jesus Christ had left in them and trusted in, in them, is the same thing that he entrusts in us and he leaves with us to do. So we're going to get to the last bit next week, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you loved us first, that you have you've called our name, and you've written it down in the book of life, And that through that, because of that, we're able to begin this journey with you, to grow with you as, as our gardener, as our, as our high priest, as our shepherd, as our friend. And Lord, I, I pray as we end this study in the book of John that, 
um, our curiosity and our desire to know you more doesn't, doesn't wither, doesn't die down. Uh, our desire to share the gospel uh, just continues to grow. And, and our confidence in the gospel, in the power of the gospel, will always stay solely in the, in the hands of the living God. That, that it's not in our hands. It's not in our abilities. Like Paul said, I came to you with my knees shaking. I had nothing more than the gospel. I pray that that, that, that would be our confidence. And even if I got nothing else to offer, I have the only thing that's worth offering. And that's the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down from heaven as the lamb to be sacrificed on the altar. He died, was literally in the ground for three days and three nights. And on that Sunday morning, as our high priest, he ascended to the throne room in the heavenlies and presented his own blood at the ark, at the mercy seat. And the father saw that sacrifice and he accepted it. And because of that, those who call on his name by faith as their Lord, as their Savior, will be saved. And so I pray that if, for those of us that don't know you like that, that you would stir in us, that Holy Spirit, you would convict us, that you would open our eyes in the way that only you are able to do, that through the power of the gospel, we would, we would understand, we would realize we would be saved. And for, and for those of us that have accepted, that we understand the good news, the gospel, that, that we, would, we would have a burden in our hearts to share with those around us, our, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, whoever it is that, that doesn't know you. That we would just share the gospel. And we, we'd leave the fact that if that seed dies or if that seed begins to grow, that, that's in your hands. All we do is we just sow it. I thank you that we are privileged, honored to be a part of your ministry, a ministry that has eternal consequences. I pray that we grow continuously and we will walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel that we were called. And we can only do that through your help, Holy Spirit. We pray that you would continue to strengthen us, give us courage and boldness, confidence in who you are and give us the words to say because that's the only thing that can save. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.